Well, I'm all fired up this morning because we have doubled the attendance in this room from what's normal. We've got Sam here as always running the, running the camera and Scott, Scott Reed's here today. That has got me so excited because it is a glimpse of things to come. I, I can't wait for the day when we can all be together again, when it's safe to, to do so. I'm so excited for that, um, that day to come. And, and, and many of us will be doing it right here in the studio. I'm looking forward to the day so much when as we continue to have these online services, we have people here so we can be together and we can be experiencing this as one. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled they're here, Scott, today, and I'm thrilled that you're all here today as well because we've got a really important and timely message for you. All right, you ready? Because we're gonna, we're gonna be going fast. If you are taking notes today, get ready to write very quickly because it's, it's gonna come really fast on sections of these. We're in a series where we're looking at the lives of people whose witness actually changed the world in positive ways. That's what we're doing this Lent. Today, we're gonna zero in on a section of the Bible that focuses on forgiveness. That focuses on forgiveness. If we follow the examples that we're gonna look at today, it is gonna be like we are a bright light shining on an off-ramp for people who are on a dark and dangerous road to see. That's what it's gonna be like. So let's dive right in. If you downloaded your notes page uh, and you're taking notes, I invite you to write this down. Can you imagine a world where more people sincerely sought and graciously extended forgiveness? All those words were purposely chosen. If you want to stand out in a good way, sincerely seek and graciously extend forgiveness. Let's unpack that a little bit. I invite you to write this down too. When forgiveness is sincerely sought, there's repentance. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, if, it, if it's for real, if it's for real, you're, you're wanting to change. You're wanting to, wanting to become something different. Imagine a world where people are doing more than just saying, oh, I'm sorry. Imagine if more people were saying, no, really, I I'm sorry and I mean it. And, and they named what they did and they were learning from their mistakes and they were doing everything they could to make things right. <laughs> Isn't that the world we wanna live in? Of course it is. Okay, how about this? When forgiveness is then graciously extended, there is less harboring of hate. Isn't that the world we wanna live in too? Don't you sincerely wanna live in a world where people are sincerely seeking forgiveness. And then they're sincerely seeking to turn their lives around. And when they're doing that, they can be forgiven. All right, show of hands in this room. How many of us are mistake makers? All right, <laughs> we got double hands from one of us. Yeah, we are mistake makers, we all are. And as seasoned mistake makers, don't we long for a safe place where we can put our lives back together and find support and find encouragement and not find people who are constantly reminding us of our mistakes, but they're cheering us on as we're trying to change. Oh, it, because they're honest to, enough to admit that they're mistake makers too. If we wanna try to shine in a world where most people, they're not sorry, most people aren't trying to change, we're in a world where there is less grace and less understanding than I've ever seen, think about how we're gonna shine. We're gonna shine like an on-ramp, or an off-ramp, I should say. We're gonna shine like an off-ramp to a better way. Well, if you want that, I invite you to open with me gen, uh, to Acts chapter six. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, a great online Bible you can find is if you go to uversion.com, they've got a great uh, app called the, the Uversion app. All right, chapter six of Acts. I love this chapter. Um, it, it, it reminds me, especially this first section here, it reminds me of a mine where you can go there and find diamonds and gold 
and emeralds and rubies. There's so much in this one passage. It is a masterclass on problem solving. It is a masterclass on delegating effectively. It's a reminder that the ministry of the word and caring for practical needs, those two things aren't at odds. There's so much here. And as we live these things out, people are going to take this off-ramp. Uh, let's take a look at this chapter. The, uh, chapter 6, verse 7 says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, people were drawn to what they saw there. People were drawn to it. The early church was treating each other differently. And priests and prostitutes, soldiers and civilians, rich and poor, men and women, they saw something different and they were invited and welcomed into this new community. And they wanted in. In the remainder of chapter 6 and in most of chapter 7, what happens now in this is that it zooms in. It, it, the text zooms in to a couple people and the first one is Stephen. It zooms into a man named Stephen. He's one of seven leaders that were appointed to fix the problem that I referenced earlier there. All right, so here it is, says this in 6.5 about him. It says what they said, pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip. He was in, Philip was another of the seven. Uh, remember his name because his name is going to reappear before we're done. Well, Acts describes, they, people were drawn to this new way of doing life. Thousands were, but there were also those who didn't like what they saw. Let's take a look at that. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Not everyone was a fan of what was going on here. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. All right. Stephen found himself on the receiving end of attacks. And they were coming from a broad coalition of haters. The way that these people selected their witnesses, the words they used, the precision of their charges, this wasn't designed to get at the truth. It was all designed to guarantee a pre determined outcome. Does that ever sound familiar? Have you ever seen situations where people are doing that? They know the outcome they want. And so they take all the circumstances and put them together so that they'll get that outcome. And well, in chapter seven, we're given an example of how Stephen was able to deconstruct their arguments. And he was able to flip the script and what he did was absolutely brilliant. But none of that mattered. None of it mattered. Stephen was about to be drawn into a mockery of a trial, which reminds me a lot of what had happened to Jesus. All right, here he goes. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 11 through 13 says this. Okay, then these, these yahoos, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred the people up and the elders and the scribes and they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. All right, let's uh, take a look, talk about this a little bit. This behavior is both sad and predictable and predictable. It was common then and it's common today. I came across this quote as I was preparing this week. It says this, people today prefer the parody of a debate. Isn't that good? 
That's what they want, right? They want the parody of a debate. They don't want a real debate. They want the parody of it. In a world like ours, so in a world like ours, what does a God-honoring response look like? If this is the way it is so often, how do we respond well? Well, one of the things Jesus taught us was to turn the other cheek. But even as that came to mind, I think it's important to clarify what that is and what that isn't. Let's start with what it's not. There's a place to write this down. Some people turn the other cheek out of fear or out of naivete. Some turn their cheek because they're afraid, if I don't turn my cheek right now, something worse is going to happen to me. That's not what Jesus was talking about. Other people, they turn the other cheek because they're naive. If I just give in now, this whole thing will go away. Next week, we're going to see some um, of that as we look at the example of a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. While many people, church people, stood on the sidelines in his day and in his place, things that they never believed possible came to pass because they were too naive to recognize what could happen. And they didn't do anything to oppose those who were advancing harmful and destructive ideas. Okay, so that's not the, the example that we see happening here in Acts 6 and 7. Stephen is going to be turning the cheek, laying down his life, but it's not out of fear. And it's not because he's naive. There's a place to write this down too. Stephen, when he shared the gospel, he did it with courage and conviction. The scripture says that as Stephen was being threatened and accused, his face, listen to this, his face, face quote, looked like an angel. And that was always problematic to me because I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Like what, in our culture, when someone says they have a face like an angel, I think of like a Cupid. I think of um, some sort of, baby face or whatever. I think of somebody who would have got bullied at, at my school, right? We can't be 100% sure what that phrase meant in their culture, but I think you'll find this interesting. I, I, it's pretty, I'm pretty sure it's not what we think of here, you know, most of us. Why do I say that? Because when angels appear in the Bible, how are they described? They're not described like little cupids. They're not described as little, the kind of people you pick on in the playground. They have a presence about them, don't they? A presence that, that, that leaves people in awe. That's interesting. So when Stephen spoke, his countenance, his presence was likened to that of the messenger sent by God. There was a strength, I, I think. There was a conviction like Jesus, right? Who, who when people were accusing Jesus, they're like, well, this guy, man, he speaks with an authority that we've never seen before. Now, I, I can't encourage you enough to read Stephen's full response to his accusers. I wish we had time to do that right now. And then the, a, a resource that I keep recommending uh, from time to time, is it's called the IVP Bible Background Commentary. I referenced that in your note page today. It does an outstanding job of, of demonstrating just how brilliant that section of Scripture is, chapter 7, when Stephen responds. Stephen masterfully starts in Genesis and then he retells the story of God and his people. And as he does, a theme emerges. When Stephen tells the story of Joseph, he reminds his accusers of how Joseph was rejected by his brothers and how when his brothers needed to be saved, the one that could save him is the one that they had rejected. Then when Stephen tells the story of Moses, he reminds his accusers how Moses was rejected and how even after Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery into the wilderness, they still continue to rebel and reject Moses. Stephen reminded his accusers, 
These weren't isolated incidents. There was a long history of God's people rejecting and attempting to silence and even killing prophets and righteous men who had been sent by God. God provides opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for people to turn to him. And yet, here's what most people do. There's a place to write this down. Most people, they're on that same path that led Adam and Eve right out of the garden. It's that same path. And at Stephen's trial, we see his accusers are following in the footsteps of those who had gone before them. Let's jump ahead. Acts chapter 6, verses 54 through 57. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they groaned their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. I mean, look at those words as they're on the screen there. I can think of examples of all of those things, can't you? Of people, they get enraged, they shout others down, they stop their ears, and they rush forward together at people. You know, if you find yourself on the receiving end of this, remember that Jesus experienced these things too. It was really interesting. It jumped out at me. Um, actually, this morning is when it really jumped out at me that he saw this vision of Jesus while he was on trial the same kind of way that Jesus was. Whenever you experience trials, no, remember Jesus, he experienced it too. Luke, the author of Acts, he includes these important details. Listen to this, verse 58. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. One of the many great insights that the IVP resource I mentioned highlighted was the fact that under Jewish law, get this, a guilty person's garments were removed prior to the stoning. Look at the detail that Luke includes. The guilty people are removing their garments. Who are the guilty people though? It were the ones throwing the stones. It was the ones throwing the stones. And where did the guilty people lay their garments? at the foot of a young man named Saul. Earlier I asked you to remember the name Philip, remember the name Saul too, because those two lives are about to intersect before we're done. Verses 59 through 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, here's the turning of the other cheek, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. One of my sources said that the person who was about to be executed in that time and in that place was supposed to say, may my death atone for my sins. What does Stephen say? He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Stephen rightfully understood what was going on here. And boy, what he said that sure sounds a lot like something Jesus said on the cross too, doesn't it? Along the way, Stephen's accusers, they are following in the footsteps of their ancestors all the way along whose step, footsteps are Stephen following in. Now, it may look like they're winning. It may look like they're winning, but is that the case? No. They tried to stop the Jesus movement by killing Jesus. Did that work? Nope. They tried to stop Jesus movement by killing Stephen. Did that work? Nope. The book of Acts says that on that day, widespread persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. On that day that Stephen was killed. But then what happened? church dispersed. 
for the first time, get this, for the first time since the resurrection of Jesus, the words of Jesus were now coming to pass because what did Jesus say? What did he promise? He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and in Samaria. Read the passage. What happened? They spread out to Judea and to Samaria. Man, just as Jesus promised. And one of those disciples was Philip. And Philip was so convicted that this was truth. He had now become so convinced that this was a better way, even in the face of persecution, that he became known as Philip the Evangelist because he had to keep sharing about what he had seen. Stephen's death was not in vain. When we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, even death can't stop God's work. It's not in vain. Over the course of this series, we're inviting everyone to memorize this verse. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. And why do we say that? Who wrote those words? A young man who had those garments laid at his feet. A young man whose name was Saul later was changed to Paul. He wrote those words. Saul started down that dark road that his peers were on until he had an encounter with Christ that changed him. And here was where my mind went this week as I'm thinking about forgiveness and the example that Stephen set. What if when Paul realized I'm on the wrong path, what if when he came to those Christians, what if they rejected him? What if they said there's no way? Now, were they hesitant at first? Of course they were. That was smart. Jesus himself says, be wise as serpents. And he also says, forgive as I forgave. And when it became clear that Paul really had changed, they welcomed him in. Imagine if they didn't. Imagine if Paul never experienced from God's people the way that God invites us home from them. Man. Right now, our country is trending more and more towards not giving people a second chance. If you say the wrong thing, wrong in their eyes. If you do the wrong thing, wrong in their eyes. Even if it was years ago, they look at this as their chance to destroy somebody that they consider an enemy. Let's be a community that welcomes people home. Can I get an amen? amen. Let's do it. Let's be, a, let's be one that welcomes people home. And it's hard work. It is hard work. You don't know that these were in my notes, Scott. Um, it's interesting, our conversation earlier. This is in my notes. Um, <laughs> there are people I don't want to forgive. I wrote on here, right? And I say that because we all have it, right? We all have it. I have people, I, and I know there's people that it's hard for them to forgive me. But people can change, especially, especially when we're encouraged, when we're supported, when we're cheering one another on along the way. We're almost to the end. Get this. By Acts 21, Paul was now fully giving himself to the work of the Lord. And on his way back to Jerusalem, find, look at, take a look at where he stays. Acts chapter 21, verse 8. The next day, we departed. And you know who the we is? The we is Luke, the author here. We departed and we came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of, who does it say? Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Luke is reminding us Philip was Stephen's friend, co-worker, and we stayed with him. Can you imagine the, the power of that moment when Paul looked Philip in the eye 
said, I'm so sorry about what we did to Stephen. Can you imagine the power of that? And Luke also includes this detail. He says that Philip had four daughters. Can you imagine the power of the moment when one of the daughters says, hey, daddy, how do you know this man? This has the power to change the world. You don't change hearts by hate. Hate begets hate. Forgiveness has the power to change hearts. What a witness we have in Stephen. What a legacy we have. This is the kind of experience that continued to convince Paul that this was a better way. This morning, I had a question for you. This Lent, will you take that off ramp? Will you say, today, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus or I'm going to recommit to that path, including what Jesus modeled and taught about forgiveness? Well, what a great opportunity on this particular Sunday. We didn't time this. We didn't, I wish I could say that we did this on purpose, but hey, what did we learn last week, right? I must decrease, you must increase. Um, how interesting it is that today is the day we're going to commemorate Holy Communion. The Lord Jesus, this is what we commemorate. These are also the words of Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then again, after supper, he took the cup. After he had given thanks, he, he gave it for all to drink. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there's so much that the Bible does not say about the sacrament of Holy Communion. It doesn't give a specific age. It doesn't give a specific method. It doesn't prescribe a specific type of bread or wine. But here's something that the Bible does say. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27-28. Whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And I put this little post-it in my notes so I wouldn't forget. Important question asked today. Who do you need to seek forgiveness from? And who do you need to forgive? So we're going to read some prayers together. And then after we do that, if, we, if you can do this with sincerity, we invite you to participate with us. Take the bread that you gathered, take the juice that you've gathered, and remember these things. But after we pray these prayers together, I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on those questions. Who do you need to forgive? And who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Let's prepare ourselves now for this holy moment. I invite you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we're sinners and can't save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, lead us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which you are about to receive. But say the word and we'll made clean. And even as those words roll off our lips, Father, um, it's so true. We're not worthy. I mean, the, the, the manner in which you forgave us is infinitely greater than anyone we could forgive. And yet I know, because I know a lot of these stories, a lot of people's stories, Father, 
a lot of horrible things have been done to us too. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be in us as it was in, in Stephen, changing us, helping us to see that our true battle is not against flesh and blood. Help us come to the place where he was able to come to, where he said, forgive them, Father. They don't, they don't know what they do. Because isn't that the truth? And Father, I also pray for those that need to forgive themselves. Help them to know that there are brothers and sisters right here, right here, who are ready to welcome them home and, and help them as they begin to put their lives together. Thank you, Father, that you didn't intend for any of us to do this alone, but you gave us prayers like this one we're going to close with, that you taught your disciples to pray. One that speaks of a Father, not just of individuals, but of us all. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.